America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our guest is Peter Bergen, a renowned journalist, documentary producer, and author who is the preeminent expert on Al-Qaeda. In 1997, Mr. Bergen conducted and produced the interview with Osama bin Laden, in which bin Laden first declared war on the United States to a U.S. audience. Mr. Bergen has since written or edited nine books on bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, including three New York Times bestsellers. Mr. Bergen is currently Vice President for Global Studies and Fellows at New America, a CNN National Security Analyst, and a Professor of Practice at Arizona State University. His recently published book, entitled The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, provides an unparalleled look at the final days of the former Al-Qaeda leader. The Soviet occupation of Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989 first inspired the jihadist terrorist group Al-Qaeda. Osama Bin Laden created Al-Qaeda with the mission to support Afghan fighters, or Mujahideen, in their battle against the Soviets. This holy war or struggle, jihad, drew thousands of militant extremists from across the greater Middle East to Afghanistan to establish their version of a pure Islamic state, or emirate, and spread their jihad. Al-Qaeda first focused on removing the American military presence from Saudi Arabia, bin Laden's home country. The terrorist group then broadened its mission to include toppling Arab monarchies and replacing them with Islamic states. Al-Qaeda also spread geographically. It established training camps in North Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia to arm and teach paramilitary skills to international recruits to its global jihad. Bin Laden returned to Afghanistan in 1998, where the Taliban had gained control after a bloody civil war. With the Taliban's shelter, Al-Qaeda planned, prepared, and directed terrorist attacks against U.S. targets. In 1998, Al-Qaeda bombed U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, killing 224 people, including 12 Americans, and wounding over 4,000. The United States retaliated with cruise missile strikes against a number of Al-Qaeda training camps in eastern Afghanistan and a pharmaceutical factory in Khartoum. Both strikes had limited effect on Al-Qaeda's capabilities. Two years later, an Al-Qaeda boat laden with explosives blew a 40-by-60 hole in the U.S. Navy destroyer Cole's port side while it was docked in Aden, Yemen, for refueling, killing 17 sailors. In the most devastating terrorist attack in history on September 11, 2001, 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked three airliners and murdered nearly 3,000 innocents, wounded almost 10,000 more, and took trillions of dollars out of the U.S. economy. The U.S. responded to the attacks by invading Afghanistan in December 2001. It was the beginning of a long war against jihadist terrorist organizations. 
While the killing of bin Laden in 2011 was an important victory, al-Qaeda adapted. It helped the Taliban reconstitute in Pakistan, extended its geographic reach, and adopted a more resilient and less centralized command structure. Al-Qaeda and affiliate jihadist terrorist organizations remain determined to conduct deadly attacks across the globe. The rise of ISIS in Syria in 2013, which grew out of al-Qaeda in Iraq, demonstrated the need for sustained counterterrorism efforts. The withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan and the Taliban's return to control of the country is a victory for al-Qaeda and other jihadist groups. They will expand recruiting, generate revenue, and take advantage of the limitations of over-the-horizon counterterrorism to plan and prepare attacks unmolested. As many Americans express a desire to end endless wars, terrorists will continue their endless jihad. We welcome Peter Bergen to discuss his latest book, The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, and the history and evolution of jihadist terrorist groups, their objectives, and the implications for efforts to protect against those who use a perverted interpretation of Islam to advance political and criminal agendas. Peter Bergen, welcome to Battlegrounds. Let me begin by saying how much I have appreciated the opportunity to work with you over the years from Afghanistan to Washington, and how much I've appreciated your insights into and assistance with the long war against jihadist terrorists. HL, thank you for having me on the program. And uh, you know, I, I first met you back in Afghanistan when you were running the Corruption Task Force, which was, I think, in 2010. And it's been great to be your friend and to admire all of what, what you've done for this country in the decades since. Well, thanks, Peter. I just want to clarify, it, was, it wasn't it was a corruption test. It was counter-corruption, counter-corruption test. <laughs> <laughs> counter-corruption. <laughs> Indeed. It, it's, 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 uh, it's, great, it's great to see you. Congratulations on, on another great book that I hope gains a wide readership, The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden. And I wonder if you might start kind of at the beginning of your journey in studying jihadist terrorist networks and Osama Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda in particular, what motivated you uh, at the outset, and and what were some of your early experiences that deepened your interest in this important topic? You know, I mean, looking back, you know, the course of Cold War ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and uh, it was, you know, what was the, what was the big story next? And I, I don't think I self really was very self conscious in thinking that, but and clearly, when terrorists, many of whom trained in Afghanistan, Try to bring down both towers at the World Trade Center on uh, in late February 1993. You know that really sparked. A, I, I I don't know if you may even recall this HR, but at first there was a discussion. Was it a gas explosion? There was sort of wasn't really clear what was happening. But you know they 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 drove the the truck into the gar basement garage of the Trade Center, blew it up. Luckily, they only killed six people. Uh, but the people the, that had this done is the this, first World Trade Center bombing using yeah. a truck bomb. I think it was ninety four. Peter Wolf. To no, it was it was February 26, nineteen ninety three. Ninety three, right? Okay. Yeah. So to you know, this was the opening salvo of a war that we didn't even know had been declared against us. Okay. Um, and Ramzi Youssef, who was the leader of that, and many of the people in, in the group had trained in Afghanistan or had supported the Afghan war effort. This was the one thing that they had in common. So I went to my bosses at CNN. I said, 
um, you know, there's something interesting happening here. We went, I went with Peter Arnett, who was, you know, then the you know, leading foreign correspondent on television, uh, just fresh off the, the Gulf War. And we investigated what this network was. We met with Gulbuddin and Hikmatya, who uh, you recall <laughs> is still an important player in Afghanistan. We met with Akhmashar Massoud, who of course was killed by Al-Qaeda two days before 9-11. And we sort of documented this so-called Afghan-Arab network uh, that was training in Afghanistan. So that was in 93. And, and I'll just point out, this is in the, in, the, in the beginning of this very destructive civil war in Afghanistan from 92 to 96. Yeah, I mean, so these guys, yeah, so I was there. This is actually very interesting, HR, which is, I mean, the conflict that I saw in Afghanistan in 93 was like Mogadishu, <laughs> you know, block to block fighting. Kabul was, you know, Every ethnic group had multiple militias. Gulbuddin Hekmatcha was the only prime minister in history to be shelling his capital on a daily basis. Uh, it was, you know, very, very violent. And I had never been in that kind of situation before. And luckily, I was with some very experienced people, Peter Arnett being one of them, uh, in terms of, and we were there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And of course, there was no way to communicate uh, because there was no phone service or anything. So it was, you know, everything took a long time. But as a result of that, we made an hour about this Afghan Arab phenomenon. But when in 96, three years later, the State Department released a very interesting white paper about this mysterious guy, Osama bin Laden, I went back to my bosses at CNN and said, I think this guy is the key to this trade center attack that happened in 93. Now, that wasn't quite right, but it turned out he was key to this kind of network. Um, and we went to interview him um, and um, spoke to him at some length. Um, and he declared war on the United States for the first time to a Western audience. He declared war previously in the Arab language press, but no one really paid any attention. Uh, and he wanted to, you know, there's a kind of doctrine that he believes that if you're going to attack your enemy, you need to warn them. And if they don't heed your warnings, um, you know, you're a sense, in a sense absolved of any guilt for civilian casualties and the like. So um, it, the, the first trade center attack was really what got me interested in the phenomenon. Um, and uh, in 97, we, we met with bin Laden. You know, you know, Peter, this is what, what makes your book so valuable and your experience so unique, right? You've bookended this, really. You, you, know, you, you interviewed Osama bin Laden before, uh, well before 9-11, I mean, before the embassy bombings uh, in, in 98. Uh, and then you also interviewed bin Laden's relatives, right, after, after he was killed. So I'd just like to ask you to share kind of your, your reflections on those two experiences, right? Why, 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 did, why did bin Laden welcome you in and share so much with you? How was that experience? Maybe just describe the whole, you know, what you were feeling and, and thinking at, at the time. Uh, and then the, your subsequent experience, it, it, you know, interviewing family members who were very uh, open with you about their, their, their feelings and their experiences. Can you just tell your viewers a little bit about the backstory uh, of those interviews? Well, so in 97, you know, very little was known about Bin Laden. Um, when we met, when we met with him, I'm not sure I really even knew what he was going to look like. Um, he, he turned out to be very tall, six foot four, he carried himself like a cleric, very thin, very kind of low key. Um, you know, it was not easy to go and meet him. They, the people were very paranoid and very secretive. Uh, but they, why, why did they choose us? I mean, they, I think they wanted to explain to an, in, in, to an English language audience that they were planning to conduct attacks against American targets. Um, CNN you know, was uh, and is, you know, a, a, a very well-known American broadcaster. 
Um, I, I think, you know, I spent a lot of time with people in Bin Laden's immediate circle in, in London uh, in the run-up to this. And, uh, you know, they wanted to talk about the Quran. They wanted to talk about Saudi politics. Um, and so, you know, I spent weeks with these guys and many of them were, some, one of them is called Abu, Abu Musab al-Suri, who you may recall HR was sort of one of the leading theoreticians of, of jihad who presented himself as something quite different than at the time. He was he presented himself sort of as a journalist, uh, not a you know <clears throat> true believer in the Al-Qaeda cause necessarily. Um, so it was a process and we got there, Taliban controlled Afghanistan, uh, wasn't, you know, was, it was complicated to get there. It was complicated to meet him. Uh, he delivered his um, kind of diatribe against the United States and, and we left. And I thought after the interview, that's all very interesting. How do you attack the United States from a mud hut in Afghanistan at a time when the Taliban is pulling the whole country back into the Middle Ages? I mean, there was no phone system. There was nothing. Um, and the answer came a year later with the embassy attacks in, 90, in 1998, uh, which killed 200 uh, and 12 people, mostly African, Kenyans, and Tanzanians, and a dozen Americans. So from that point forward, it became clear that bin Laden had no compunction about civilian casualties. The U.S. Embassy at the time in, was in downtown Nairobi, on two of the busiest intersections in the city. Big city, you know, the truck bomb blew up, killed 200 people. Uh, so from that point forward, because you'll, you'll recall the famous um, 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 kind of observation by Brian Jenkins, uh, who's a brand uh, uh, not far from where you're sitting, uh, you know, that terrorists want a lot of people watching, but not a lot of people dying. And that used to be what the, the kind of way that terrorism, they right. didn't want to... Propaganda it, of the deed type of thinking, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you don't want to kill so many people that you turn off fence-sitters or you alienate people. Bin Laden wants a lot of people, he wanted a lot of people dying and a lot of people watching. So this is kind of a new phenomenon. Um, and then in terms of the sort of people like I, after 9-11, um, you know, I started, I went and interviewed people in Bin Laden's media circle. Uh, of course, I couldn't interview any of the women. Uh, they're, they're living in, you know, kind of, they don't meet with men. But I spent a fair amount of time with his brother-in-law, Jamal Khalifa, who was m murdered in mysterious circumstances in Madagascar in 2007. Uh, and uh, Jamal Khalifa was not only Bin Laden's brother-in-law, but also his best friend at university and sort of gave me a you know, pretty good understanding of Bin Laden's radicalization. I try in the book not to do too much armchair psychologizing because I sort of feel like I'm not a psychologist. He's not my, you know, but I, but I, because I think actually when you, there are probably 50,000 books about Adolf Hitler and there's still really no good answer to the why question about what, you know, we can kind of see the process, but, you know, why would somebody, you know, carry out the Holocaust? Not to say that Bin Laden's like Hitler, but I'm just using it as sort of an illustration, which is, it, I think it's as a, as a reporter and journalist, I was trying to explain the how process because nothing well, he, is, he is he is a mass murderer though for sure he, he, so he, is, he is a mass murderer he is yeah, a mass murderer right. and and yet why why did he feel that he could just kill all these civilians and you know that these are hard questions to answer but it, what i try and do in the book is sort of explain his journey from this shy pious almost monosyllabic teenager to the leader of al-qaeda and it, nothing in it, you know, there were off ramps that could have happened at any given time. The process took decades. Uh, and the book is an attempt to kind of explain that process. 
And you, could you explain uh, this part of that as part of the, the ebb and flow, the, I mean, the growth of Al-Qaeda, the extension of, uh, uh, of its ambitions and, and its, its capability? It, of course, part of, part of its strength is ideological. And I wonder yeah. if you could take our, you know, our viewers and listeners back to kind of the evolution of jihadist ideology, an area of, you know, that, that we've spoken about quite often in the past, and, you know, including Wahhabism and Salafism and, and uh, you know, Sayyid Qutb and, and, and the Islamist movement that originated in Egypt, and then you know, how the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia later in the 20th century, you know, became the greatest proselytizer of, of a form of Islam that I would kind of describe as an intolerant perversion of religion that is used to justify violence against innocents in pursuit of, of these you know, criminal and, and political agendas. So could you explain why I, what, what the ideology is and how it's important to Al-Qaeda's uh, strength and to Osama bin Laden's rise and fall? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, one of the themes of the book is the uh, overestimation of the role of Ayman al-Zawahri um, in, in the, bin Laden's intellectual development. If you go back to the post 9-11 era, uh, there were a lot of people who were saying Zawahiri was the brains, you know, Saeed Qutb was very influential, which he certainly was on Zawahiri. But Zawahiri's preoccupation was overthrowing the government of Egypt and bin Laden's preoccupation was uh, attacking the United States so the United States would pull out of the Middle East. This was not uh, something Zawahiri had really ever thought of. And so one of the kind of, I think, takeaways of the book is that, you know, bin Laden turned out to be the brains of uh, al-Qaeda, not Zawahiri. Zawahiri remained focused on Egypt. But in the pre-9-11 era, he had very few followers. He's really kind of a supplicant in bin Laden's world. Not He showed up in these press conferences and stuff. So people, it was easy to kind of misunderstand that he actually played a very small role. But more Bin Laden wanted to show that he had a global network and Zawahiri was useful because he was an Egyptian. But really, it was Bin Laden who came up with the, the big idea, which was let's attack the United States in order for it to pull out of the, the, middle, the middle East. The idea had a few uh, uses for Bin Laden. One, it united a bunch of very disparate guys. Uh, and of course, they were all guys in Sudan uh, who were you know, all exiles, Egyptians and Saudis, Yemenis, etc., who uh, were kind of who'd come out of the Afghan war against the Soviets. It was a big idea which they could all agree on, despite their own differences. And the other point was, I think Bin Laden, you know, he really believed. I mean, he told us in '97 um, that that the United States was as weak as the former Soviet Union, which was a kind of crazy idea. I mean, his his strategic thinking was terrible. As a as a somebody who's done a great deal of thinking about strategy uh, yourself, you know. It, his big idea was, you know, America, you apply pressure, they will pull out. Now, to, in his defense, if you look at what happened with, in, with the Reagan administration after the Marine barracks uh, attack, where 241, mostly Marines, but other soldiers and sailors were also killed, um, you know, the Reagan administration pulled out. <laughs> and so it wasn't... And, and Mogadishu, I think, is another... Was well, and Mogadishu is another, and yeah, he would, right, yeah. and Laden would cite Mogadishu. And right. also he'd cite, um, we, they bombed a couple of hotels in Yemen, during Operation Saw Hope, they were housing U.S. soldiers going to Somalia, and then the United States stopped putting soldiers soldiers in Yemen. This was in '92. So, but this showed a fundamental misunderstanding of Americans' interests. I mean, we had zero interest really in Somalia, um, and and scant interest in Lebanon, relatively speaking. Uh, but Bin Laden interpreted all that as like, well, if you put enough pressure on the on, on the Americans, they will leave. Um, and um, you know it was very naive because, of course, when America when when we were attacked in Washington and New York, 
our response was actually to get more involved in the Middle East than we've ever been in our history. Um, not only, you know, setting up new bases in Kuwait and UAE and Qatar and uh, invading, occupying Afghanistan, overthrowing the Taliban in three months, you know, I mean, the Iraq war. The point is, no, bin Laden didn't expect any of that. And there's no evidence that he planned for it. Um, he was surprised by the American response. Um, and Abu Musab al-Suri, who I just mentioned, you know, who's, you know, not a, uh, you know, he, he was part of al-Qaeda. He wrote that of the 1900 fighters that were in Afghanistan, Arab fighters on 9-11, 1600 were either captured or killed. So people in al-Qaeda understood that this, this really backfired. Right, right. And could you, could you talk a little bit more about that, about the tension in objectives, right? And the objectives of al-Qaeda and how they've shifted over time between, you know, between the far enemy, you know, the United States and the near enemies, right, of, of, of the Arab monarchies, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in particular, and of, yeah. course, and of course, Israel. Well, you know, I mean, I think you know, it was bin Laden's big idea was the far enemy. And I don't think he never, if you look at the documents from Abbottabad, and thank you, um, HR, for, you know, making sure that they got released in full, uh, because they were very useful for my book. Uh, that was in, I think, November of 2017, that they were released in full. I mean, the documents are full of bin Laden telling all his um, you know, affiliates, you know, keep your eye on the main prize, attack the United States, don't get distracted by local politics. Don't try and set up an Islamic state in, in Yemen or so for bin Laden, the far enemy was always that was always his preoccupation. Now, these local affiliates, you know, they they often found that the near enemy approach. I mean, look at Al Qaeda in Iraq in terms of the attacks on the Shia or look at Al Qaeda in Yemen with their attacks on the Yemeni government uh, or, or pick your Al Qaeda affiliate. Often they are more focused on the on the so-called near enemy, i.e., the local government. Um, and you know, I think what well, over time, I mean, you've been following this for your. I mean, you're not just following. I mean, you've fought against Al Qaeda directly in in different capacities in Iraq and in Afghanistan, um, and as national security advisor with the sort of the um, outgrowths of Iraq, like uh, of Al Qaeda, like ISIS. But if you look at it, if you look at it over time. Um, the fortunes of these groups have waxed and waned. I mean, if we'd had this conversation a few years ago, Al-Shabaab controlled a good chunk of Somalia. If we'd had this conversation a few years ago, Al-Qaeda and Yemen controlled a good chunk of Yemen. And I think, you know, and it's not impossible that they, you know, it, it, I mean, my big takeaway from all this is that the weaker the, Muslim, the government is in a, in a Muslim country, the stronger these groups are. It's not that these groups are strong in, in and of themselves. They prey on weak hosts. So if you have a vacuum in pick your countries, Somalia, Afghanistan, Yemen, they will do well. And if you have a sort of semi-competent government, they won't do that well. Look at Indonesia. Yes, they have an Al-Qaeda affiliate, but it's a semi-competent government uh, with some capacity control, its own territory and monopolized violence. And the Al-Qaeda affiliate there, you know, hasn't done that well. Uh, and um, so that's my you know, it, it, this is, I, in my view, this is never going to go away also, <laughs> right. you know, because, because I think, if you look at the four waves of terrorism that David Rappaport laid out, the anarchist wave, the Marxist wave, the anti-colonial wave, and here we are in the religious wave, you know, it's very hard to abolish God. You know, the Soviet Union can go out of business. That kills the Marxist wave. The anti-colonial wave got the British out of Palestine and the French out of Algeria. And, they, you know, in a sense, they succeeded. But in this case, you know, they've, you've got a group of people, who, a very tiny group of people, relatively speaking to the numbers of Muslims in the world, who truly believe, believe that God is on their side. And I think it's, 
<laughs> that's hard to sort of extirpate. And I think the big difference, if we were, the biggest difference for me since 9-11 uh, in terms of what's going on is the arrival of sectarianism in all this, because yeah. you know, one of the takeaways from the book is the extent to which bin Laden was really kind of focused on not having a sectarian conflict in the Middle East. And, you know, his, it turns out his mother really was an Alawite, which, of course, is a sort of heretical branch of Shiism as far as most Sunnis are concerned. And so bin Laden was trying to keep all this together and prevent some sort of sectarian conflict. And of course, now that is the defining feature of uh, the conflicts in the Middle East. Right. Well, and, and this is, I think, one of the most important uh, points that readers can take away from your whole body of work. And, and this book in particular is that, is that really it, it probably never will be over, right? And much of what we're doing is trying to prevent the worst from happening again. So I wonder if you might just talk a little bit about how you see the state of the counterterrorist effort now based on the evolution of the conflict over time, right? You have... You know, you you have really the the, the mass murder of 9-11 is is perpetrated by the the uh, the Afghan alumni of the Mujahideen resistance, right, to Soviet occupation. Now we're facing an ISIS alumni, right, which is orders of magnitude, which is Al Qaeda 2.0 uh, in in most cases, um, it, which is orders of magnitude larger. Uh, many of those fighters, as we all know, went back to Europe to countries that don't require visas to the United States. And I, what I worry about most now, Peter, is the is the belief among some of these groups that that they're winning. As you mentioned, I mean, we've been, I think, doing a great job working with indigenous forces to take the brunt of the fight against them. But there is this move toward disengagement these days, right? To to, to, to end the endless wars, and 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 uh, and of course, what's keeping these groups strong. Uh, is is state weakness and and security forces that are unable to go after them effectively, but also as you mentioned, the sectarian civil war right that is occurring across the greater Middle East, and if it moved to South Asia, it would be disastrous. And essentially, what that sectarian civil war allows jihadist terrorists to do is to portray themselves as patrons and protectors to beleaguered Sunni communities, right? And and um, and so, what what is your view of the state? of the counterterrorism effort? Uh, and are you concerned that the disengagement from Afghanistan, for example, will allow uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, certainly the Taliban, but other related groups to declare victory against the world's greatest superpower and therefore gain psychological strength that translates into recruiting power uh, that that, uh, that that then, I think, inspires uh, even more brazen acts of of mass murder and other terrorist actions against us. Yeah, I mean, you have often used the the phrase strategic narcissism, which you know um, I think is a, is a great phrase because you know it's all about us. It's not about. It's like there's no other players in these conflicts, and you know somehow if we absent ourselves from a conflict, the conflict's over. And I went back and I looked at the headlines in December of 2011. Reuters had a great headline. Uh, when the United States pulled out of Iraq, you know, U.S. pull out of Iraq, war over. Well, <laughs> the war didn't end. It, it got much worse. And I mean, when we're seeing the same headlines now in Afghanistan in newspapers like the New York Times or the Post. In fact, the Times actually actually changed its headline at, at, at a certain point because, again, it was like U.S. pulls out, war over. Well, now we now we see the war is not over. It's accelerating. So. So I'm, I mean, and I'm Peter, I'm, if I might just interject here, you could yeah. also have to see the same quotation from President Barack Obama to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to President Biden, right? Three people you would think are quite unlikely to, to make the same statement 
All of them have said Al-Qaeda is a shadow of its former self, almost in the same exact language. I'm sorry, but go ahead. Well, and I, you know, I mean, I think you can certainly make the argument that it's Al-Qaeda is in a very different place than it was on 9-11. I mean, just leaving aside the kind of pull out question from it, but just like, how did we do overall? I mean, I think the United States did a great job with its allies of managing this issue. I mean, if we'd have this conversation two years after 9-11 and we predicted that 18 years later, that there would be no foreign terrorist organization that carried out any attack on the United States, which with the exception of the attack in Pensacola, which killed three American sailors in 2019 and had some links to Al-Qaeda in Yemen. That's the only attack which was really a foreign terrorist organization had any kind of role in it at all. And so that would have been, a, it would have seemed- but There were attempted attacks, I'll just mention, like the Times Square failed bombing and so forth. There was forth. the Times Square, but, there was right, the- but, that, but that's an indication of the success of, of efforts abroad, I think. You know? Yeah, yeah, and the Times Square, um, I agree. I mean, one of the reasons I think the Times Square bomber did succeed, didn't succeed, and that was he was trained by the Pakistani Taliban, is, you know, he didn't really have enough training. And part of the reason he didn't have enough training was the U.S. drone program in the tribal regions in Pakistan, where it just made it hard to train for weeks or months or months and months. And so, um, you know, we have... So I think that you know our offensive capabilities, the United States offensive capabilities, the drone program, the best witness for the effectiveness of that program is Osama bin Laden, who, as you know, wrote pages and pages and pages about his concerns about the drone program and the effect it was having on his organization. Then our defensive capabilities, you know, on 9-11, there were 16 people on the no-fly list. Today, the last time I checked, it was 84,000. And then there's like a million and a half people on the tide list, which means you go into secondary screening if you get on. I mean, and that's just one example. The intelligence budget tripled. The, we didn't have TSA, DHS, NCTC, a whole alphabet soup of right. kind of uh, anti-terrorism kind of agencies. And so between our offensive capabilities, our defensive, cap- defensive capabilities, and then, of course, public knowledge being a force multiplier for all this and sort of people are aware of this as a problem. Right. Yeah, we've done. Now, a very and I, would, I would add the integration of intelligence and law enforcement and financial actions. Right, I think yeah. has also been uh, pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, joint terrorism task forces. There were thirty-two on nine eleven. Now there are one hundred and five. I think so. Just every we've just done a great job. I mean, and and this has been a bipartisan achievement because presidents as difficult, different as Bush, Obama, President Trump, even Joe Biden took some uh, drone strikes in Somalia. It seems just recently. Um, you know, have had this kind of a playbook that everybody kind of understands sort of has worked. And this gets then back to them, the withdrawal question, because uh, the playbook, uh, assist and advise, counterterrorism, some special operations, I mean, uh, c- cyber warfare, um, you know, th- th- this this all works. And so, you know, absenting ourselves from Afghanistan, you, the, you know, we're half the country is now controlled by the Taliban, by some estimates. and um, you know, they're, do, they're doing well. And it's, it's deeply unsurprising. And I, I think this, again, is also a bipart. This has been a bipartisan failure because December 1st, 2009, President Obama goes to West Point, announces the surge and the and the withdrawal on the, during the same speech. I was at CNN that day. We get a text of the speech at three o'clock. The crawl on CNN wasn't about the surge. It was about the withdrawal. And that was how, the, how it was understood by the Taliban, the Afghan government, the Afghan people and the Pakistanis. You know, that, that was the headline. Um, and, and then, of course, President Trump constantly said we're leaving and now President Biden has actually made the actual decision. But, you know, I think it we don't even learn from our we don't we don't learn from our recent history. Forget about our you know, this, it's only it's been you know, relatively recently that we did the same thing in Iraq when we know how that played out. And we're already seeing how that's playing out with the Taliban. And I, I think it's an unforced error. 
um, completely unnecessary. I know I'm uh, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here, but um, well, it's 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 just it's it's just uh, it's heartbreaking for me because you know it's yeah. you know I, I know so many Afghans and and I think what we're seeing is that you know really your point about hey we're never just going to have a final victory and say all jihadist terrorist organizations are defeated forever right and right. I think what you're seeing in Afghanistan is an affirmation of what we did achieve there, right? But instead, Peter, there was this narrative of defeat, right? Hey, Afghanistan is not Denmark yet. Therefore, you know, we've failed. Well, Afghanistan didn't need to be Denmark. And so what you're seeing now is what our forces were preventing from happening. And, and I think the consequence is going to be, as you've alluded to, is that jihadist terrorists are going to gain strength in an area that is ideologically and psychologically important to them. And I wonder if you might just, if you might comment on that and just talk about maybe the, the geographic areas of the world that are important to these organizations. I'm thinking of Khorasan and, you know, the so-called Khorasan and, and then the, the, uh, you know, the land between the two rivers in Mesopotamia. Well, Khorasan, of course, is, I mean, uh, you know, there's that particular verse um, that, um, that about the, 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 the knights coming out of Coruscant with the black banners that ISIS sort of adopted in Coruscant, of course, is the name of the area that encompasses parts of Afghanistan that was used that during the era of the Prophet Muhammad. So, I mean, I, at the end of the day, their core interest is the Arab world. And so, obviously, Iraq and Yemen and, and Saudi Arabia. Um, but, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan is where they had their big victory against the Soviets and where they now believe they've had their big victory against the United States. And I think the split screen on 9 11 will surely be. Uh, there's a lot, of, by the way, there's a lot of media coverage of what's going on because the story has changed, right? So I, I, look, I looked at the Post and the Journal and the Times today um, and, and at CNN last night. I mean, there's a lot of correspondents who are going to cover what they know is an unfolding, you know, very big story because for a long time, the story was, you know, because it was a conflict that was sort of more or less, you know, I mean, it was somewhat stable in a sense. Uh, but we're going to see a lot of coverage. And on 9-11, President Biden will be at the World Trade Center monument. And, and, and the if the families who are, they're pushing back against his presence, as you know, because they want the um, redacted Saudi government uh, material in the 9-11 report to be fully released. But let, if he will be memorializing the 20th anniversary. Taliban will be celebrating their victory. Will they be in Kabul? Who knows? But I thought it was fascinating, HR, that they are the Taliban, uh, according to reports I read just now, are using Humvees that they've captured. So American military, and it really reminds me of ISIS in so many different ways. So, what was the ISIS playbook? It was, um, you know, breaking people out of prison, which the Taliban have been doing a lot of. You know, they've, they're, they're releasing hundreds. A, we released thousands. Well, Al Baghdadi, right? I mean, was was prisoner, <laughs> and so and so were. I mean, uh, and then we and then we and then what we did is we cajoled, forced the Afghan government to release five thousand of some of the most heinous people on earth, uh, who who have reconstituted the Taliban. That's right. And then now the Taliban, when they seize a city, are letting the you know they're taking the prisons and they're letting people out. So they're, they're going to replenish themselves with all these people who've been in prison. Um, you know, they're relying on the psychological sort of aspect of war, which is like you know they're they're winning, and so people are just put you know it's like the Iraqi army in the summer of 2014. Mm -hmm. I don't. I mean, I don't know about your own assessment. I've heard from 
from Afghans that the Afghan National Army in some levels is, is, is much worse shaped than the Iraqi army, which I'm sort of surprised by. Um, um, but they're also saying the Afghans I'm speaking to, there are thousands of foreign fighters pouring in, which doesn't surprise me, even if it's not thousands, it's hundreds. I'm sure there's people coming from Pakistan and you know, the UN is very clear on this point that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban never separated. And this is the UN. This is not <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely, yeah. And and it, it's it's uh, it is. This is extraordinary self delusion, Peter. I, you know, the, the idea that that Al Qaeda and and uh, and the Taliban were completely separate organizations. And and I wondered if you might comment on that based on on what you what you uh, discovered going through the documents. And and so you have, I think, you have kind of a unique perspective. You do have a unique perspective on. On uh, on Al Qaeda and Bin Laden because of your early uh, your early coverage of Al Qaeda and then bookending it with not only getting access to the documents which as a historian I really couldn't couldn't wait to get released uh, when I was National Security Advisor but then also uh, but then also you walked the compound right you visited the compound you interviewed people in the neighborhood can you can you talk us about about to us about uh, how you gained entry to that, what you saw when you got there, how what you saw in the in the compound and in the room where Bin Laden died connected you to the documentary record that that you uh, that you examined, and and what did you learn from all that? Well, getting into the compound was tricky because, of course, it was controlled by ISI, the Pakistani Military Intelligence Agency. I went three times. Uh, as you, you know, my my wife, HR Treasure, uh, is, is a very kind of persuasive person. We went... And, and, another, gra- another great journalist. <laughs> another great journalist, yeah. yeah. And the ISI were, you know, somewhat... The, there, there were people who, I think, wanted us to to help us. And in the end, you know, on the third trip, they I, I said, I'm, I can't come back for the fourth time and, like, have this not happen. <laughs> uh, and they let me in. I didn't know they were going to demolish a compound two weeks later. And, you know, it was very interesting for me uh, to, on two levels, one, one you know, I had, I knew what had happened the night of the raid because I talked to a lot of people, but to see it yourself, you know, for instance, the Cy Hirsch conspiracy theory that somehow the Pakistanis and the Americans, it was all a setup. Well, if this was a setup, it was, uh, it was uh, <laughs> pretty elaborate because, I mean, there were evidence of, a, you know, a very, uh, you know, pretty violent firefights that took place in various parts of the compound. There was a lot of, you know, broken glass and bullet holes and, um, you know, so anyway, there was a lot of evidence that what happened that night, as as described by the SEAL operators, the people in the Obama administration, the ISI itself, Pakistani military, you know, there was a violent assault. Um, and I, you know, going through the compound, I could see it gave me just a better sense of the geography of how that firefight and firefights happened. The other thing, it also allowed me to see how bin Laden was living. It was unsurprising to me that they were not living large. I mean, Bin Laden had, was kind of a miser. He was paying the t- two bodyguards $100 a month that were looking after him. He he was a very kind of stingy and he had his own farm essentially on the property so they didn't have to go out and buy their own food. He had separate living quarters for his three wives. Each of them had a kind of a crude kitchen. Um, you know, so it, it kind of gave me a sense of what that life was like. But in terms of the documentary record, the, one, the key document that was released by the release that you authorized was what the CIA described as a bin Laden journal. And actually, it wasn't quite that. It was something perhaps even more interesting. It was a bin Laden family journal. And it was, they, they as the Arab Spring happened, which bin Laden thought was the most important event in the Middle East in, in, in centuries by his own account, um, they started recording nightly meetings. His two older wives both had PhDs, uh, which might be surprising to some viewers. 
uh, one in child psychology, one in Quranic grammar. His two adult daughters uh, took careful notes. They believed Bin Laden was a world historical figure who could give a speech and sort of take control of the Arab Spring, which was quite naive because, of course, th nobody was carrying a Bin Laden banner during the, the initial phase of the Arab Spring. And no one was looking for Taliban-style theocracies, uh, which is you know, Bin Laden's preferred mode of governance. So, but they they knew this was a big deal. They could see that history was passing Bin Laden by. That he and he. So in the last weeks of his life, they had these long discussions about what should Bin Laden say. His big idea was, we should assemble a a, a, a group of religious scholars who will advise these new governments um, about what to do. And presumably, their advice would be, you know, you need to imp impose a kind of theocratic uh, style of governance. Uh, but he never delivered that speech. He did record a speech which was released posthumously two weeks after he was killed. Um, but the, the, you know, the, so this Bin Laden family journal is very interesting about the atmospherics during the last months of his life as he struggled to think about what to say about the Arab Spring. And I thought, um, Anwar Alaki, who you would call, <laughs> actually, so I wrote a piece saying, you know, Arab Spring, death of Al Qaeda, because I did think that, uh, you know, that because, you know, the people who began this Arab Spring, whether they were liberals or Muslim Brotherhoods, this, this was not good for, for, for Al-Qaeda. And Anwar Alaki actually kind of responded to it and said, actually, this is going to be great for us. And he actually was found out to be more right, a lot more right than I, than I was, because I didn't understand that coming out of the, the Arab Spring, there would all be these vacuums and uh, that, that Al-Qaeda and its successors and affiliates would really take adept advantage of. And Anwar Alaki um, either did understand that or claimed he understood it. Um, and that, if, that, of course, is what happened. I mean, and so in countries like Yemen and Libya um, and Syria, um, you know, I mean, you know, what, you know how, how, how that all transpired. Right. And you, can, I, can I use this as a bridge to talk about the role of two countries in perpetuating the sectarian civil war across the region and keeping jihadist terrorists, uh, you know, sort of on life support and then and helping them gain strength. And the first of these is is Pakistan, right? You toured the compound. I mean, yeah. is it in any way possible that ISI did not know that, that Osama bin Laden was there? You know, of course, we know that ISI is the reason why, along with Al Qaeda, working together is one of the reasons why the Taliban could regenerate after 2001. Uh, we know that that it is really the Pakistani government's use of, of jihadist terrorists as an arm of their foreign policy since 1947 that has helped to create this terrorist ecosystem uh, in, in the federal administrative tribal areas in Baluchistan that has blown back against Pakistan numerous times. But but the ISI, Inner Services Intelligence Pakistan, is unwilling right to, to begin to take on these groups less selectively. Um, what can you tell us about how you view the role of Pakistan? And then I'd like to talk to you about Iran as well and Iran's relationship with Al-Qaeda. Okay. Well, you know, it's hard to prove negatives, but and the documents don't show that there was any Pakistani official in touch with bin Laden uh, there, or that he, or any, or anybody in the Pakistani government or officials or military knew where he was. I mean, so there are 6,000 pages of useful documents out of, a, out of the 470,000 files. These are documents uh, written by bin Laden or written to him, essentially, or by his top leadership. Um, and they just don't, there's no evidence for some kind of Pakistani official. And, and one of the takeaways is, uh, of, which is kind of astonishing, bin Laden was hiding from, uh, like the bodyguards, one of the bodyguards' wives didn't know that bin Laden was hiding on this compound. And he was being so careful. So he, he, 
everything you said about Pakistan is correct. But in the case, this case, you know, Bin Laden, you know, uh, Al Qaeda tried to kill Pres uh, General Musharraf on, on at least two occasions when he was president. Pakistan had arrested Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the operational commander of 9-11, uh, Al-Libi, another significant Al-Qaeda leader. So Al-Qaeda had good reason to be highly suspicious of the Pakistani government. And the Pakistani, Pakistani government uh, also, uh, also had good reasons to be suspicious of Al-Qaeda. After all, they were being attacked by Al-Qaeda. Um, now, there was a, um, a discussion within Al-Qaeda to do some kind of truce agreement with the Pakistani government. And they, they approached the Pakistani Taliban to talk to their ISI interlocutors about this truce. It never happened. Um, so that's on the Pakistan side. On the Iran side, you know, it's, it's really complicated. <laughs> um, and then what, I'm, what I'm alluding to just for our, our listeners yeah. and viewers is, is the is the fact that that Iran has given safe haven to to many Al Qaeda leaders over the years. And and there's that one passage in the documents, Peter, about, uh, uh, you know, about Iran being their logistics lifeline or something to, to that effect. So uh, well, I just want to give that background before you. Yeah. Hear yeah. The documents are, you know, so they. <clears throat> Seven of Bin Laden's uh, fam seven of Bin Laden's kids and one of the, and his oldest wife, Um Hamza, all lived under house arrest in Iran for a decade after 9-11. Uh, also, Saif al-Adil, the military commander, and Abu Hafs al-Mauritani, the religious advisor to, to al-Qaeda. Um, and the, the house arrest kind of varied from, um, you know, sort of semi-okay to pretty bad. I mean, one of the documents says that uh, there was a riot by members of Al-Qaeda and, uh, and also family members protesting their conditions. And, uh, you know, basically Republican Guard went in there and sort of beat people. This is in 2010. Bin Laden himself was very suspicious about the Iranians. He was very concerned that when they released members of his family that they might have tracking devices in their dental fillings or somewhere. Um, so Bin Laden's view of the Iranians was one of, uh, I think, you know, he was very skeptical, sometimes hostile. Yet at the same time, you know, Saif al-Adil certainly lived in Iran. Uh, U.S. and Saudi officials believe that he sanctioned, uh, that Saif al-Adil had a, a role to play in the attacks in, in Riyadh in 2003. And so, you know, it's a, it's a pretty murky relationship uh, in the sense they, they lived there under house arrest. Yet at the same time, they were very suspicious of them. Um, and... Um, there's nothing, there was no evidence in the documents that Iran and Al-Qaeda cooperated on terrorist attacks. Um, and there's plenty of evidence that bin Laden himself was very skeptical. And, and in fact, he would write to his top associates saying, we can't trust these guys. So that's what it is. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's not a clear cut um, picture. Yeah. And you know, I think this is the, the case is that none of these groups are completely you know, homogeneous or monolithic right they they overlap they they coordinate with each other whenever they can and and uh in pakistan to me i i, I think this the idea of it being a terrorist ecosystem is actually a good description right because these groups they share people and resources and revenue from illicit trafficking in the narcotics trade how, how would you describe just the the terrorist ecosystem in in pakistan afghanistan and then and then more broadly really across you know, from from the G five Sahel region to North Africa to to Yemen to to uh, you know to to Syria, Iraq, uh, and then on into East Asia, right to Malaysia and, and the Philippines. 
you know, the, uh, President Biden in, in his talk you know, talked about, well, the reason one of the reasons to disengage from Afghanistan is because these threats are manifesting themselves elsewhere. But I think actually the opposite is the case, because this is really a, a central geographic location uh, for groups that do operate on, on a on a uh, on, on a grand scale, you know, far away, you know, from the Afghanistan Pakistan border, but grounded to some extent uh, in 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 that space, uh, you know, in that ecosystem. Yeah, well, you know, the documents are very eloquent on on elements of this question, HR. I mean, the I mean, the document, of course, the documents are available to anybody listening to this. If they want to go on the Office of Director and National Intelligence website, they can pull up these documents. So, I'll give you three examples, which I think are are really interesting. So. Um, Al Qaeda kidnaps an Afghan diplomat um, in, and, and in 2010 gets $5 million ransom. They, by their own account, they gave large sums of that money to the Haqqani network, essentially a fully owned subsidiary of the Taliban. Siraj Haqqani, of course, now is the. With, with, and with the inexorable uh, connections to the ISI, I would say. As with, well. with, real, with, real, with real connections to the ISI. And. Um, they also write about a joint uh, operation they were very proud of. They massively exaggerated the scale of this attack in, in the documents, but the attack did happen on Bagram Air Force Base in, I think, May of 2010, where they killed an American contractor. They wounded a dozen American soldiers. And so this was a clearly a joint operation between Al-Qaeda and the Akani network. Uh, on another occasion, bin, somebody, uh, bin Laden or one of his top deputies, wrote a letter to the leader of the Pakistani Taliban saying, hey, you know, stop killing people in mosques and sort of really treating them as sort of a subservient element to them. Uh, there was letters from bin Laden to Mullah Omar in the months before he was killed, also to Tayyab Aga, who was the uh, kind of main negotiator on the Taliban side with the United States, who was Mullah Omar's private secretary. And so there's, a, there's a lot of evidence in these documents about the close links between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, their warm relations, their, their funding, it was Al-Qaeda funding the Taliban rather than the other way around, which is interesting yeah. at one point, and, and, and also their joint military operation. So I think the documents speak for themselves. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned as, a, as an historian, you were happy to get them out. Well, these documents are very hard to argue with. I mean, <laughs> um, and, um, and, and then, you know, in terms of the global kind of reach of all this, I mean, bin Laden was trying to micromanage his guys in North Africa and Yemen and Iraq. And, you know, he, he had a problem, which was it was like running a, biz, a business in the early 19th century without the phone or Internet because he, he wasn't using those. And so he would send these messages, which were sort of hand carried. Sometimes they would get lost or replies would take months to come back or they or some people just ignored what you know they got a, a message from bin Laden. They just ignored it. Uh, but but certainly he was trying to kind of maintain his, what he saw as his you know, global enterprise. And as you say, um, you know, these these groups wax and wane. And I, you know, one thing that I was at a, a, a party for my book, and I think there were a lot of people there who didn't necessarily know much about the U.S. military. And I asked them a question, which is how many active duty and how many reservists are there uh, in the U.S. military? And of course, the answer is 1.3 and about 2 million when you add in the reservists, right? Well, and we had 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. Right. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but as a <laughs> no, I mean, if maybe, maybe that's a stretch for the Ecuadorian army, but it's not for the, the U.S. <laughs> or, army. I mean, or, or, it, you know, we 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 talked ourselves into defeat and withdrawal, Peter. It was a stretch for the um, the Andorran army. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, and, and even if you go back a year earlier to 8,500, right, which yeah. during which we were very effective because we're still actively targeting and going after the Taliban and Al Qaeda uh, and, and ISIS Khorasan, by the way, which we haven't really talked much about, but is, yeah. uh, of course, uh, sometimes at odds with Al Qaeda, but they also cooperate, you know, in this ecosystem. But, you know, I, I just want to ask you, are, are you concerned ab about our ability to sustain our will, right, to, to secure ourselves? And, and, and might you say a few words about what you think about this narrative of ending endless wars? Because what occurs to me is, hey, it's not an endless war. It's an endless jihad from the perspective of Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. And as you also alluded to with, with citing the Reuters headline, hey, wars don't end when one party disengages, right? Al-Qaeda is not looking around. So, oh, hey, the Americans are gone. I guess we'll just stop. So could you just well, say I mean, a few I, words is, about is, this narrative? And Yeah, this is in the sort of in the form of a question to you, HR, which is, um, you know, I mean, I think wars probably, I mean, the idea that wars have, have a sort of a punctuation point and end, it might be a, a, a function of sort of the industrial uh, phase of war, which was, you know, that you, you could deliver a kind of decisive defeat to the Germans or, um, you know, or, or the Japanese or, or, or during the Civil War, um, you know, the Union could de de decisively defeat the South. Um, you know, war, I think in the past, if you go back, I mean, it's, there was a hundred years war between France and England, you know, which was never, you know, it didn't. So the idea that wars must be, you know, are, there's going to be a swift resolution isn't necessarily what we've seen in history. And certainly it's not in this case. And so I think this is a, a, a competition that we can manage. Um, and, that, and that's the manage, I think, is the best verb, because I think defeat is like, uh, you, um, there's a bunch of reasons I think that you. This is not. This is a movement that is going to be very hard to completely extirpate, uh, because it's just going to pop up in other places. But I think you can manage it so it's not a, a national security issue for the United States. Um, and but that does involve managing it. It doesn't like involve application. Um, and so you know, I and, and I would say, Peter, if you want yeah. to use a, it depends on how you de describe defeat. Maybe defeat yeah. is that jihadist terrorists are unable to accomplish their objectives, right? Through yeah. the use of violence, right? Uh, yeah. Against innocents. And, and as, as you mentioned, that entails effective operations against them, but it also, it also requires sustainable political outcomes in, in certain geographic locations that are yeah. fundamentally inhospitable to jihadist terrorists, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, 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 Indonesia, I think, is an interesting example where, you know, it's not the world's most competent government, but it got some help from the Australians and on the counterterrorism side and really, and they, they hit JI and, and, you know, JI is still there, but it's, it's not killing 200 mostly Western tourists in Bali. It's, it's, it's sort of a pale shadow. And then, of course, these groups are their own worst enemies. They tend to, Create a world of enemies. They don't have a positive vision of the future. They, you know, they, uh, you know, it's not. Most people don't really want to live in a Taliban-style utopia. So, you know, from that point of view, you know, they they tend to also, you know, make a lot of mistakes themselves. But I, I do, I, you know, we we just know from our own history. We closed our embassy in Afghanistan in '89. Had no idea what was going on there. Really, the Taliban came, then Al Qaeda. We had very little visibility on in, into that, and so. Um, and we made the same, I think, mistake in Sudan uh, in, in 95. We closed our embassy there. That I mean, we were, the Sudanese government was you know, uh, ho you know, hostile to the United States, but there was probably, an, we, there, 
if you're not there, you can't make the agreement to say, hey, we'd like to know more about Al-Qaeda uh, because they were based here for so many years. So, you know, I want to go back to your ecosystem kind of question because, I, I mean, or, or observations. I think it's a very useful one because I think, you know, there's a continuum in, in a country like Pakistan where, you know, Abu, Z- Abu Zubaydah was found in a Lashkar-Taiba safe house. Uh, you know, he wasn't a member of Lashkar-Taiba. Um, you know, when you look at the, the the kidnapping and murder of Danny Pearl, it was like there was a bunch of jihadi groups, including Al-Qaeda, that was sort of involved in that. So there is a kind of spectrum and, and the, these groups uh, do cooperate together. Uh, and um, that's just a fact. I mean, they, they have more in common than they have uh, dissimilarities. Um, and, um, you know, there'll be other outgrowths of these groups that we, whose names we don't know may have slightly different objectives, but at the end of the day, they they kind of share sort of a, a common worldview, uh, which I think allows them to operate in the ecosystem that you describe. Right. And Lashko Taiba, you know, really a, a creation of the ISI, had a splinter group called Triki Taliban Pakistan, which targeted then the Pakistani government. And yeah. then a splinter group off of that formed the basis of ISIS Khorasan, right? So uh, you know, I, I think it, it, we do try too hard, as, as the, the great analyst Tom Jocelyn says, you know, we try too hard to disconnect the dots. You know, <laughs> uh, you know Peter, as, as we commemorate the uh, 20th anniversary of the mass murder attacks of 9-11, the most devastating terrorist attack in history, during which nearly 3,000 innocents lost their lives, the attacks took trillions of dollars out of the American economy, you know, uh, you know, countless more really suffered uh, trauma and, and injuries and and, and, and negative health effects uh, from that massive attack. I was just going to ask you, how, how are you going to remember uh, 9-11? I, I, I personally, I think, think we ought to really recommit ourselves uh, to not only remembering the victims, uh, but also to, to honoring them with our deeds, right, as we continue our efforts against jihadist terrorists to try to secure, you know, future generations from, from this scourge. And and so, I, how would you? What what message do you have for our viewers and listeners on this really around this twentieth anniversary of of those mass murder attacks? On nine eleven, I was going to go into CNN. I was on my way to CNN to talk about the murder of Akbar Shah Massoud by Al Qaeda. We didn't know that he. It wasn't clear that he was dead. I, I knew he was dead, but the, the Northern Alliance was trying to keep it quiet, um, and um, because they knew it would be very bad for morale. Uh, we didn't know it was Al-Qaeda. That didn't become clear until later. But so, I, you know, I just started talking to some people in Afghanistan who, you know, the, there's Akbar Shah Massoud's son. Akbar Shah Massoud is, uh, you know, they, they're going to stand up against the Taliban. And, um, you know, one thing that, I mean, I, I you know, I hadn't really thought of, about your, uh, this question, HR, but I, but I think it's important for people to understand in addition to the Afghan National Army, which may not be that competent a group of people in general, but then there's a Afghan Special Forces who are competent. There are all, there's going to be these Tajik militias, including led by Akhmar Shah Massoud. There's going to be these Uzbek militias. I mean, we have made a tremendous blunder. Uh, you know, Talleyrand said it's worse than a crime. It's a blunder. Uh, and, um, you know, but I, I'm, I'm not convinced that the Taliban, it's a different country, as you know very well, you know, 25% of the 70 70% of the population is under the age of 25, and they, those, those people don't have great nostalgia for the Taliban. So, so I mean, I hope that um, the various interests that have no in ethnic uh, class, 
uh, women, all you know that 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 there will be kind of a sufficient weight against the Taliban, so they don't have a, an easy victory, and that at, at a certain point, I hope that the United States will reverse its, uh, uh, in some way, reverse its terrible decision because it's not just that we left; it, you know, seven thousand NATO allies left, and mm-hmm. sixteen thousand contractors left. Uh, and all of that was vital. And we were there with the permission and the, um, uh, you know, it's not, we were we were never occupying Afghanistan. The Afghan government wanted us to be there, wants us to be there. Uh, so. Which, which guess, just shows you how, how inaccurate the narrative is of this, this graveyard of empires narrative and so forth. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's extraordinary how deeply misunderstood the war has been, Peter. I, I could not agree with you more. And, um, I, um, you know, I, I was there when the Taliban ran the country. The World Bank stopped measuring its economic indicators because there were none. The population of Kabul was 500,000. We don't know what it is now. Is it 4 million, 5 million? You know, it's, just, it's, it's the idea that this was a failure or that we've been there so long, we're still in South Korea 75 years after the end or the, the armistice of, that, end, that ended uh, hostilities in, in the Korean War. You know, 20 years is not a long time. And I going back to some of those debates, HR, that you were part of in the Pentagon about, you know, what to do in Afghanistan, you know, go light, go long, go, you know, um, go big, go. I, I think in retrospect, one thing is we should have said we're going long and kept saying it, you know, because at the end of the day, the Afghans don't care if there's one Marine outside the U.S. Embassy that we say we're committed to or, 3,500 or 8,400 or whatever the numbers are. I mean, obviously there's a difference from a military point of view, but a lot of this is psychological. And we have just, we kept saying, we're leaving, we're leaving, we're leaving. And then we left mm-hmm. and we said we we're deeply uncommitted and we followed through. Right. I, and I just think that has been a terrible message. Um, you know, one thing that isn't expensive is messaging. Uh, and and obviously it has to be allied to some real things as well. But I think our messaging has been just a p- terrible um, and I think we've made such a bad decision that I could easily imagine it being reversed. Right. Absolutely, Peter. And, uh, you know, war really, really is a contest of wills. Peter Bergen, thank you for writing another brilliant book. And then thank you on, on behalf of the Hoover Institution for, for joining us to help us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. It's been great to be with you. Thank you, HR. Thank you for having me on. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.